let's say it's just like a 10% drop in performance in our team's ability to generate revenue for the practice. If we're talking about a million dollar practice, maybe we could be making $100,000 more a year if we had a fully engaged team. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. Willie and I are excited to host the Veterinary Financial Summit, which will be held virtually October 22nd and 23rd of 2022. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more. Our guest today is Dr. Cindy Courtney. Cindy and I first met at the Uncharted Conference back in 2019. She is a small animal veterinarian, a speaker, consultant, and she's the jerk researcher. Cindy, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for joining us today. So let's start off with with that, with how did you become the jerk researcher? The common question I get from folks is, who was the jerk? Like, was there a jerk that started you down this road? And there was, but it wasn't who most people expect. Like, I was the jerk that I first started researching. I was the toxic team member at my first practice. And I wanted to better understand kind of why I was behaving the way that I was. Was I stuck that way? Was I just going to repeat this behavior over and over again? And was there something that I could do better? I was certainly, I sometimes have that bold personality type that can sometimes rub people the wrong way. And especially when I first got out into practice, I was dealing with the desire to be that perfect vet who provided the perfect care for her patients that ended up really translating into being overbearing and kind of micromanaging for my team. And I was lucky enough that they thought I was positive enough of the rest of the time (laughs) to both call me out on my behavior and encourage me to change, but also to set boundaries and say, like, Cindy, this, this really isn't okay. So like any good nerd, I, of course, dove into the peer-reviewed research to figure out how I should go about doing that, right? So I was encouraged to find that this was not necessarily something I was doomed to repeat forever, right? Like, I think a lot of the dialogue in the profession can sometimes be like, you can't teach people people skills, you know, why invest a lot of time or energy into folks who are behaving badly because they're just going to be stuck that way. And, and to be fair, you know, the prognosis is not always great, but that doesn't mean it's hopeless either. And I was able to work with my team and I was able to improve a lot of my behaviors. And, you know, it's a continual journey, but <laughs> we ended up really improving not just me individually, but I think as a whole team too. And so as I talked with other people, I realized this was a challenge other veterinarians were going through too, and that I could potentially help other practices and some of my peers face those same challenges. So Cindy, what caused you to use the word jerk? And what does that word mean to you? Yeah, you know, it's the word I felt like I was using to describe myself. I feel like it's the word I hear people use colloquially to describe people in that similar position. I wish I had a better like technical explanation for why I picked that word. But when I dove into that peer-reviewed research, I was hearing things like civility and I was hearing the a-hole word. And I was like, that's not quite what I'm looking for is either a little bit too light or a little too dark. And I was somewhere in the middle. But that was a word I heard people bringing up a lot. You know, my boss is a jerk. My coworker is a jerk. I was like, okay, what does this word mean? 
And what, if anything, can we do about it? And the more I learned, and I actually, you know, dove into the dictionary definition of jerk, which Merriam-Webster defines a jerk as basically an unlikable person. And I love that definition because it points out why we think someone is a jerk, which is basically that we don't like them, usually because we're in conflict with them. But it also points out that the unlikable part, the fact that we think of their unlikableness as part of who they are, right? We think the fact that we don't like them is part of their character, is part of their fault. And that's actually part of this inherent bias we have as people, that we tend to blame negative outcomes, not on the overall situation, but on someone's character, on the, the character we're in this situation with. And experimentally, we can show that we tend to over-attribute negative outcomes to somebody else's character as opposed to the situation we find ourselves in. So I like using that name because it draws people in with the language they're already using. You know, we kind of think we're going to solve all our problems if we just fix the jerks in our life, <laughs> but it's more complicated than that. So we kind of bring people in using the same language they're using and then give them the tools to zoom out and see the bigger picture. That's a very good segue to what I had in mind asking, because you're mentioning about communication, but I want to know, can you tell us about other ways to be a jerk, not just in behavior? And to help you out with this one, I'm thinking about a practice owner not implementing good management techniques. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great way to think about it. Like, what exactly is this, right? So, you know, I first bring it up as like a label, right? You know. So we tend to put this label on people and we call them a jerk. But why is it that we choose that label? You know, and certainly there are people where there are a whole bunch of people applying that label to them. So why does that happen, right? And so there are certainly patterns that make that happen. And the way I think about it, and people also use the term like toxic behavior, right? Or like toxic practice. Mm -hmm. And so the way I conceptualize that is there are certain patterns that lead us into destructive conflict on a regular basis. Like not all conflict is destructive. We can have productive conflict. But when we find ourselves in destructive conflict with the same person or in the same environment over and over again, it's usually because there's something going on where we're not predicting that conflict, preventing that conflict, recognizing it, addressing it, or resolving it in an effective way. And so that can happen on both the individual level but it can also happen on the organizational level, right? So if as an organization, we are in denial about conflict, so we think like, oh, our organization is just going to be great. We're just fantastic people. Conflict's not going to happen here. And so we don't plan ahead with those great management tools, like you're saying, Willie, to say, let's have a plan for how we want to treat each other. And here's how we want to address conflict. Well, then we're likely to fall into destructive conflict because we don't have a productive conflict plan, right? Or, you know, if we have someone who's choosing to get into practice management because, you know, they want to be in charge, like they want to make all the decisions and then they don't let their team know that's the plan and their team wants to have some input or thinks they should have some input, you know, we're likely to end up in a lot of destructive conflict because our expectations aren't aligned. So I think, you know, having the emotional intelligence to understand why conflict happens and to bring that to your management approach can help you prevent the toxic workplace from happening. And so it can help prevent you from being an organizational jerk, as it were, if that answers your question. 
Yeah, so overall, like increasing communication, you know, at the end of the day, what worked, what didn't work, just conflict management. Yeah, you know, and when I think about conflict and the things we can bring organizationally to help deal with conflict in a productive way, I think about the fact that we're more likely to get into conflict when we don't have resources that we need. So if we are, feel like our needs are threatened, we're more likely to get into conflict. So you know, as leaders, are we thinking about what our team members need? And I don't just mean in terms of financial resources, though that's important, like are we paying a living wage? But also, you know, our team members want social connection with one another. You know, they want to feel like they belong. And if we don't bring the team together to socialize and connect, are they going to be more likely to gossip with one another and create a toxic way of getting that need met because we didn't provide it in a different way? I think about things like setting people's expectations. If people come in and they think they're going to have this really democratic organization when really, you know, the leader of the organization wants it to be top down, confusion is the mother of conflict. So if we don't set those expectations, we're going to have more conflict. And then again, just like you said, I think those communication skills, our people are, you know, financially a really important part of our practice. You know, 40% of our gross revenue, right, is going to then be going back into our team members. So are we investing in them working well together, just in the same way we invest in maintaining our equipment in our practice, right? Like we want this team to work. They're expensive and they're also necessary for us to generate revenue in the practice. So not investing in their ability to communicate and work together seems like a little short-sighted to me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so if you have a jerk in your hospital, how much does that cost the practice from a financial perspective? Yeah. And there are some great texts out there that help people calculate estimates of this. I really am working on some models that hopefully will get us closer to a more specific experimental number. But when we break down the potential costs and estimate it for about a million dollar small animal practice, we estimate a single toxic individual is probably costing the practice on the order of six figures per year. So it's a lot. The top cost most people go to immediately is turnover costs, and that definitely is a, a significant one. Estimates are that if you have a toxic team member or someone who's behaving with incivility, probably have about a 12% increase in turnover in a given year. And so if your staff costs are about 40%, and if we estimate, again, there's a little bit of a range there, but we estimate turnover costs to be about a team member's yearly salary, then for a million dollar practice, we're probably talking a little under $50,000 a year just in turnover costs. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal to be losing your people. But it's probably not the highest cost because there's still a lot of people staying in that organization who are not bringing their best to work every day because they are not as engaged in their workplace, they don't feel devoted and happy in that workplace. When we look at studies of creativity and productivity in a workplace with incivility, we see massive changes to people's performance. So if they're the direct victim of incivility, we see generally 50 to 60% loss in creativity and performance. When they are even witnessing incivility, we see 20 to 30% drops in performance. And so if we went even really conservative and we said, okay, well, maybe that's experimental. Let's say it's just like a 10% drop in performance in our team's ability to generate revenue for the practice. If we're talking about a million dollar practice, maybe we could be making 
$100,000 more a year if we had a fully engaged team because we didn't have this toxic team member who was making people really unhappy to be there. And if you look at surveys of people on these teams, you see huge percentages of people wasting time ruminating on how they've been treated. You see like 25% of people admitting that they are intentionally treating clients badly because they've been treated badly themselves. You see people spending less time at work, uh, intentionally spending less effort at work, decreasing the quality of their work. So we know that this is changing how people are performing in the workplace. And that's likely the biggest cost. There are others too. Uh, reputational costs are probably pretty high. We know that team members are talking about these things to others. We know that clients end up talking about these things. When I first moved to my current town, one of the first things I heard about a practice was, oh yeah, that practice, they're really hard on their team members. That was the first thing I heard about a practice in my new town. Mm. So that means lost clients. And that means the lost lifetime revenue that that client would spend on their pets, lost recommendations. We have increased hiring costs for those reputational costs. There are other things that do cost small amounts, probably less. So we are more likely to get sued or have board complaints. The financial costs of that are low, probably higher emotional costs on those than financial costs. Wow. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a <laughs> lot going on. And my question was what are other ways that jerks can affect your bottom line? You gave great examples. I really liked, I'm writing notes here about financial yeah. creativity and, and performance because that was so good. But anything else? Yeah. So what I think is tough is that these things affect the bottom line in ways that are a little bit more intangible. Mm -hmm. So we also know that this kind of behavior, I mean, we feel it when you're in a toxic practice, it affects your mental and your physical health, right? Like, so we know that workplace stress is one of the top leading causes of workplace disability. So if you want your team members to be showing up to work and to be happy and healthy when they show up, I mean, you need to have them being treated well when they're at the workplace. Um, we what is, I think, something people really don't appreciate is how much this impacts patient care. And so if we want our patients to be healthy and well for us to have a good reputation, and you know, again, this is the whole point of us getting into medicine, right, is to take care of our patients. There are very high quality, prospective, controlled, and it is as a lab, but they looked at NICU teams and they were in a training simulation and they either exposed them to rude feedback from a manager or neutral feedback from a manager. And they found that when they had even small amounts of rude feedback, their diagnostic and treatment performance significantly decreased because that team was not communicating as well with one another. They weren't helping one another and they weren't sharing as much information. So we know that this is hurting our, our patients and interfering with our ability to work together with a team. So that, again, is harder to put into numbers, but we know cascades down into the performance of the practice as a whole. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> so let's talk about a scenario. Let's just say, hypothetically, one of our listeners works with a jerk. What advice do you have for them on how to deal with it? So it's a big question. And I think we kind of triage it a little bit, right? Because there are lots of flavors of jerks out there. Just like we talked about, this is a label we put on someone. So it often is a generic label for conflict. There are lots of different types of conflict that can be out there. Sometimes we're calling someone else a jerk and we're playing a role in the situation too. So lots of different flavors there. But I think the first question everybody has to ask themselves is, 
is this something we want to deal with? The same way our clients are asking themselves, like, my pet's off. Is this bad enough to go to the vet, right? Like, is this jerk bad enough for me to deal with it? Because it's scary, right? We don't find this person very enjoyable. Do we even want to be in conflict with this person, right? I think that's an important question to ask. Civility researcher Christine Porath out of Georgetown talks about the importance of considering safety when you even choose to have these discussions with this person. Do you feel physically safe talking with this person? Do you feel emotionally safe talking with this person? Is this person going to bully and harass you? That's important to consider. I add to that list, do you feel financially safe talking to this person? A lot of people will come to me and say, you know, my boss is a jerk. I should tell him off, right? And I should, you know, make sure I change things. And sometimes that is the right thing to do for the future. Sometimes it's not financially safe for that particular individual if their family is counting on them and they have a really awful non-compete and that person has every intent to blacklist them in that local area, you know, so I can't sugarcoat it. Mm -hmm. It is true that if there is a quote unquote untouchable jerk in the practice, whether that's a boss or kind of a favorite in the practice, reporting bullying, especially when you do it by yourself and you don't have good evidence behind it can actually make you more likely to get fired than to get the situation addressed. So you want to do this in a thoughtful, intentional way that does help keep you safe. So if you don't feel financially safe doing that, it is okay to hold off and not approach that conflict. Then I talk to people about prognosis. So almost like we would think about a disease, like how chronic is this? Has this been going on a long time? If it has, we're probably not likely to do a complete turnaround for this person. How severe is it? If it's really severe, if this person is like, you know, threatening violence, probably not safe, right? If this person is really harming other human beings or it's severe bullying, probably not going to change the situation yourself by having a conversation with this person. How contagious is this? Is this something that is quickly spreading to everyone else in the practice? If so, you're probably not going to handle this by yourself. Is this something where you know it's always going to happen at the same time? So every Friday before closing time, this person gets really, really antsy to get out the door and they get really grumpy. Probably going to be easier to fix that than if it just comes completely out of the blue. So in the same ways that we kind of think about medical problems, we can kind of prognose whether or not this behavior is likely to change and how much energy we want to put and invest into changing it. So those are some of the things I recommend people think about before they even start pursuing the challenge about how we actually pursue it, that is a whole suite of skills, emotional intelligence skills that are two-hour workshop in and of themselves where we talk about self-awareness, we talk about communication, we talk about mediation, negotiation, boundary setting. So while I can't really go into the whole details there, fortunately, there are a lot of other resources out there and there are you know consultants like me and others out there that can also help talk to you about that and either coach you through that individually or even get into the weeds with you and sometimes help mediate that conflict with you with that individual. Using the medical terms, it's a great example because I'm just thinking about, oh, this happened yesterday and the pet mm -hmm. can barely move. And similar to a clinic owner being like, this happened yesterday and the clinic's on fire on the background. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, just this one toxic incident. It's definitely not been going on since we started this whole enterprise. It's definitely not a dumpster fire. (laughs) Especially not in the past couple years. (laughs) So, okay. So let's go into another hypothetical situation. So what if one of our listeners works for a practice owner or practice manager who is a jerk. And so what advice do you have for them when it's actually the leader who is the problem? So I think the safety concern becomes really prominent there because I rarely run into people who feel super safe with someone who is already a jerk, who they're already identifying as a jerk, who they want to talk to about the problem. And it's frustrating. and and. I want to appreciate, you know, I have an amazing boss at my practice who takes her responsibility for creating a place where people work and have jobs and can grow. She takes that responsibility extremely seriously. And I know that when people look at their leaders, they have very high standards for them. And and that is an incredibly big challenge. And that being said, for most organizations, the costs for a team member for bringing up a concern are potentially very high, right? They could potentially lose their job. They could get a demotion. They could have a loss in salary. Like there are potential lot of challenges for bringing up feedback and it going poorly. And for most times they bring up a concern, the possible benefit is usually pretty low. You know, it's maybe a pat on the back, maybe something changes, but it's probably going to take a while. It's going to be slow and it might not even turn out the way that they expect. And so it really is in the hands of leadership to be proactively soliciting feedback, to create psychological safety so that the team knows not only is feedback desired, but that it will be appreciated, rewarded, and used. And so I think that's why when I talk with folks who are in that situation, I generally say, figure out if you want to stay or not. (laughs) If you don't, you know, figure out if you can reach out and say, as you're leaving, what if any feedback would you like about the organization before I go? And providing specific feedback that that leader may be open to might be the best way to give them input. Because if they just say, oh, just tell me anything, you may end up telling them something they really aren't ready to hear. But if they say, you know, hey, I am concerned about whether or not people feel like they can approach me anonymously with comments, you know, then you can say like, yeah, I didn't really feel like I had a good anonymous way to come to you with comments. Here's a suggestion I might give for doing that. I do find that most team leaders are going to be the ones to lead the charge if change is going to happen. And where I see problems happen is when people stay because of a misguided sense of loyalty or because they think they need to protect the rest of the team. And so the leaders don't end up having to face the consequences of their own actions. And so they think everything is fine and they don't have to recognize the fact that their own jerk behavior is causing everybody to leave. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people, unfortunately, change if it comes is going to be small and it's going to be slow. Give feedback where the leaders seem open to it, but I wouldn't necessarily stay 
just because you're trying to protect people. Sometimes leaving is the best way that you can give a signal that things need to change. A lot of truth to that. Yeah, for sure. So how would you know if you're a jerk and who within your clinic can you ask about this behavior? So uh, here's something I can give your listeners with 100% certainty. Uh, we are all jerks at least sometimes. So <laughs> if you're not getting feedback about the things that you are sometimes doing that annoy other people, then you're probably not as approachable as you would like to be about feedback. So people may be scared to come and bring you feedback if you're not getting any negative or any constructive criticism sometimes, right? So we all have things that we need to get better on. So I would encourage people to be actively soliciting feedback, to be asking people, you know, what suggestions that they would recommend for particular things they're looking to improve on, to be doing things like 360 reviews, to be trying to get information about what are specific behaviors that they could improve on. Now, you want to be careful with those because they need to be done by somebody qualified in doing them. Sometimes you can just get information that's really more about what's going on for the people filling out this 360 than what's going on with you. But unless you are actively soliciting that information, you're not going to get helpful information, especially if people are scared of you, right? So once you get that information, what you want to look at is, is the feedback that you're getting consistent? So if you're hearing the same things over and over again, they're more likely to be true, right? And then you want to look at, is the feedback that you're getting consistent with your values? So for instance, I've been in a situation where I got some critical feedback because I brought up some discussions that were going on where men in a room were taking up a lot more of the conversation than the much larger population of women that were going on in the room, right? Mm -hmm. And I was very open to hearing the way that I brought that topic up. I was not open to getting feedback about whether or not I should bring that up at all, right? Because inclusion is really, really important value to me. So it's not something I'm going to stop trying to do. But it is also important to me to not be making people feel less than. And so it is something I'm open to hearing like, oh, okay, maybe I could have shared that information in a different way, or I could have given that feedback in private. So I think when you get feedback, you want to compare that to what your values are and to say like, okay, yes, I'm hearing that I am acting in a way that is impacting people in a way I don't desire. And that's when you want to go ahead and take that feedback and make a change happen. There are some really great approaches for doing that. Disclosure, I am certified in this specific method, but there is an evidence-based coaching method called stakeholder-centered coaching, which focuses on getting feedback from the people in your immediate circle and then choosing goals and actions that help you change your behavior and then getting feedback from those same people about whether or not you're improving. Hmm. And by checking in with those people regularly and getting suggestions from them on how you can do better, you not only help yourself improve, you help the people in your immediate circle buy into your improvement and see that you're actually improving. So let's unravel a little bit about the immediate circle, because, you know, yeah. when I ask you about, you know, who can help me with that behavior or letting me know that I have that behavior, I usually would ask my associate friend and that associate friend maybe has the same mindset as I do. So he might just agree with me all the time. So I don't think that would be constructive criticism, but let's talk about this circle. 
Yeah. Yeah. So who are the people that we should get feedback from? Right. And so I think about, you know, who are the people that are behavior impacts? So generally the work that I do, I'm, I'm talking about in the workplace, but people could also do this when it comes to their family life, right? So often a well done 360 review may look at, you know, people who are your supervisors, people who are your peers, people who are working quote unquote below you or that you supervise. It may even ask clients that you work with. Sometimes they even do ask family members. So to get that kind of wider picture of what are some of those patterns in your behavior that you may want to change. And that feedback is generally done anonymously so that those people feel like they can give you feedback that they aren't necessarily going to get punished for, right? So that they can be truthful, they can be honest, they can be open so that you have that opportunity to see other people in a kind of more accurate way. And to get those different perspectives and to recognize, oh yeah, this may be the way that my boss perceives me. This may be the way that my team perceives me. And then once you have your ideas around how you want to change, you may direct who you want to get suggestions from. That might be a different group than who you got that overall picture from, right? So if I realize like I need to be better at delegating, I don't really need to generally delegate to my boss. Generally, I'm going to delegate to the people I supervise. And so then when I get suggestions and I get input on how well I'm doing, I'm not necessarily going to get additional feedback from my boss. I'm going to get additional feedback from the people I'm supervising. So we might get kind of this broad picture of ourselves initially from a really wide group of people. And then when we're changing specific behaviors, we want to get suggestions and feedback and assessments from the smaller group of people that that specific behavior change affects most. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense. So recently I heard you in another podcast and it seemed like you got really excited about talking about different applications and technologies. So I wanted to ask, you know, are there any other ways a company or clinic owner can prevent being a systemic jerk? Yeah, you know, so... I tend to think about the initial implementation of a lot of anti-jerk approaches as relatively low tech. That being said, you know, when we talk about how can we perhaps meet team members' needs, you know, I think about what are some of the approaches that we can do that, right? So some of the the resources that I use in my work, for instance, is if we are trying to get feedback from the whole team. Like say we're trying to set clinic values and we really want to make sure that the values that we determine as a whole clinic really represent those of, of everybody. So those who are introverted in our clinic, as well as those who like to speak up all the time, sitting down in a circle, in a room, and just letting everybody go at it is probably not going to reflect those introverted voices particularly well, right? Because mm -hmm. they're not necessarily going to feel comfortable speaking up. So I love technologies like Poll Everywhere that allow people to participate in anonymous ways. And I love sending agendas out ahead of time so people have time to process and think so that they can think through those kinds of questions and be able to share in a way that makes them feel more comfortable. Again, for providing feedback, sometimes providing feedback anonymously can be really helpful. So a lot of times in the coaching work that I do, the mini surveys that get sent out are done anonymously through using just really basic polling technology tools. I love when teams use positive feedback mechanisms for one another. And I apologize because I 
I'm not going to be able to name one right off the top of my head, but there are a lot of uh, really great kind of kudos apps out there where team members can give each other points just on the fly of the moment. If someone does something kind for them or gives them a compliment or, you know, does something helpful to them that they can almost like we know we want to give that positive reinforcement to our animal patients right away to encourage that future behavior that we can get our teams to start encouraging that as well. So I think when we talked about letting our team members have a social way to connect with one another socially, so they're not necessarily gossiping, I know my team really loves using like our Slack channels to fulfill that need. So I I think we can use technology in a lot of ways to make this happen, but the basic concepts behind having good communication, what are our values, a lot of that starter steps don't necessarily require a whole ton of investment to make them happen if that's not in the cards for that particular practice. Yeah, I love using Slack and WhatsApp as far as easily creating groups and being like, okay, we need to talk about this. Let's join everybody to this group. But you just blew my mind with, because I've been in many meetings where there's 10 people And of course, two or three are talking and talking. I'm an extrovert, so I usually have no issues talking. And you come up and say like, oh, you haven't said anything. Can you, you know, you want to, you want to pitch in? It's like, this person is an introvert. Mm -hmm. They don't want to say anything. So you just blew my mind thinking about, yeah, we call these people out, but they just really don't want to speak out in these meetings. But you know, they have great ideas. Like there's some fantastic literature on there about like how thoughtful introverts are. And, you know, again, taking that time to be perceptive and to process is really important. And we don't want to miss out on that. Agreed. And there are lots of introverts in veterinary medicine. <laughs> mm-hmm. There sure <laughs> are. <laughs> they do that lovely personality <laughs> testing on us all, don't yes. they? Oh, that dish profile. so we're nearing the end of the episode what's the best way for our colleagues to connect with you absolutely yeah so i'm most active on instagram right now so they can find me on instagram at the jerk researcher i'm also on facebook and twitter and then my website is thejerkresearcher.com i do do free 15 minute just kind of exploratory calls with folks so sometimes that is hey, I'm stuck in a toxic practice. What do I do? And so often I'm at least able in that 15 minutes to give people some basics around like, hey, here are some books, like here are some places to get started. So whether or not they end up working with us on a a longer term basis, we can do a little bit of first aid for people to to get them going. Because we know that unfortunately, there are a lot of folks struggling out there. So we try and do what we can that way. And there's a link on our website for people to set up that, that initial kind of exploratory call. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Excellent. And so, Cindy, now we come to our last question. What is your best advice for our listeners? The advice I try to give to everyone is that when jerks are draining their energy, that there is still hope. As contagious as negativity is, kindness and bravery are contagious too. I recommend people set boundaries to protect the energy that they have and then just start making some positive changes for themselves somewhere. No matter how small those changes are, they can start to snowball over time if you just start somewhere. Great advice. I love that. Just start somewhere, somewhere positive. Well, Cindy, thank you so much. This was an amazing episode. You gave us a lot to think about. First thing I'm trying to think is how am I 
going to ask or the best way to ask my staff if I am being a jerk. So I'm going to sit and think about that. Well, and it might start small. <laughs> like, hey, this is something I want to improve on. And you don't always need to get feedback. Sometimes you can get feed forward. You can start asking for the suggestions of how you can do things better instead of always having to ask the things you're doing wrong. <laughs> if that makes things a little bit easier for you. Feed forward. That's a new one for yeah. me. So I like it. All right. It's been great talking with both of you. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for having me. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you. This has been fun, Cindy. Thanks so much. If you like this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.